0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Successful Solopreneurs Podcast. Um, today, I want to introduce you to Keith Hanna. Keith is the founder of Step Up Coaching. He's also the author of a series of books called Blind Spotting, and he is an executive coach. Probably uh, one of his most well-known clients was Brett Wilson. Happen to have his book on my shelf too, Redefining Success still making mistakes, aren't we all? Um, Keith, is there anything else we should know before we get going and and chat about business? Welcome to the podcast. I hope you enjoy the honest advice and personal stories. I'm Sue Stiles, the CEO of the Successful Solopreneurs School of Business. And I'm here to share hope and possibility so that you can reach the unwavering results you desire. Find the best business resources, advice, and offers at suestyles.com. And now on with the show.
1: Well, I suppose that little book you had in your hand was due as much as uh, anything from a rather significant mountain bike crash I had in Moab about four years. I've been for, I don't know, 10 years or so thinking about publishing another book and I wanted to do something significant and I put my, a lot of thought into structure and how I wanted to do it. I arrived at a, the idea of doing a serialized book and where I would interview people and I would include their voices in there along with mine so that the, the first person narrative would change from person to person. So it took me a long time to figure out the structure and I knew the 12 books that I wanted to write, but then uh, Spent about three years procrastinating writing the first one. I kind of picked at it and, uh, you know, would come back to it every once in a while. But I was, uh, was definitely procrastinating. And then in April, I think it was about actually about three years ago, I was uh, descending a very scary mountain bike trail in Moab called uh, the Portal Trail. And while in Moab, I found out that it had killed the most number of people of all the trails in Moab. And so instantly I was interested in going and seeing that. And so I went with a friend and we rode it cleanly and safely for the entire time. And about a hundred meters from the end of the trail where the car was clearly in sight and the trail had backed off and it was much less serious. I hit a rock in the middle of the trail, went over my bars, uh, landed on my handlebars, perforated my, my bowel, and then ended up doing like a backflip and landed on my back and it was frozen there for about 45 minutes. But the interesting thing about that, about that crash is I remember just moments before it happening, I had been riding all day with an elite level cyclocross racer and he was, uh, shall we say significantly ahead of me most of the time. But on the downhills, I discovered I could go faster than him if I was willing to take a lot more risks. I just remember thinking just before crashing, I am so much faster than Craig. That was the last thought i remember having and then uh smack and while i was flipping in the air i hadn't even finished crashing yet i remember thinking really clearly to myself oh this is purposeful like this is something i have clearly uh, decided to do for some reason i don't completely understand and so i was in the hospital for about eight days uh, going through the worst pain i've ever experienced uh, but i was unusually joyful which was kind of weird and what I took from that was that uh, I had uh, in- engineered something in- that was large enough to break through the crust, my comfort zone. And basically, I got off the dime and started writing as a result of that. And I got my first book done relatively sh- uh, soon after that. Uh, the one that you were holding as, as the fifth in the series. So I just kept kind of working out on them. And yeah, it was something about being on the wrong side of the edge and coming up to the edge so many times as a writer and being uncomfortable, but you know, sort of jumping across that chasm. I think most writers, my brother's a writer as well. And we were talking yesterday about how most people who write have this imposter syndrome that nobody really wants to ever listen to what we have to say. And that writing is an act, uh, basically an act of revolution against that thought. And that I just had gotten into the habit of nobody wants to hear what I have to say and I just wasn't writing and then while I was in the middle of the air about to you know finish crashing I had the thought well it's time to get off my ass and do something about it
0: wow what a big revelation I uh, even in just picking this up because I knew we were going to talk I actually I'm going to put it aside and just read it all again here's just one one thing that you say that The conscious act of stretching my comfort zone and crossing the edge is one of self-confrontation. I often play small when I feel anxious or desperate in the face of challenge. I start making up stories about how I really don't want the thing I said I wanted. This is comfort speaking. I can, of course, live a good life from within my comfort zone, at least for a while, but it is so much more difficult to lead a great one. Tell me about that concept.
1: Well, even before I had crashed, you know, I, I, I hadn't bolted myself into greatness at that point. I was still doing a version of playing small. And playing small for me was this sort of smugness about, you know, feeling very prideful about beating my friend Craig down this really treacherous stretch of rock. And pride really did occur before the fall in that case. And it, it was a hard smack. And I think it's interesting how if I don't consciously choose to, to leap that chasm, that crevasse, that edge, whatever metaphor you want to use, if I don't consciously choose to get out of my, my comfort zone, it's amazing to me how I will manufacture the setting to do that anyway, or as in, the, in, as in the case with COVID, there are a whole bunch of people in the world right now that are actively pursuing their greatness and pursuing their dreams simply because COVID knocked them out of their comfort zone. There is no comfort in staying where we were anymore. Many of the things that people were holding on to have just simply been destroyed now. So the mm-hmm. cost of pursuing greatness, the cost of pursuing one's vision or one's dream, those costs have gone down a lot. It's not that the risk is gone, but uh, there's less to hang on to from the past nowadays.
0: Yeah, I uh, often think, you know, when we've got nothing to lose, then nothing can stand in our way. We um, And as you're just saying that, you know, I realized that just before I um, ended up going into bankruptcy, do you know, I was going to get a job and I knew I had that job and I knew I would be fabulous at it. And I was so cocky. When I look back now, I can see that that point. And then I couldn't get a job for months. We ended up going through a terrible situation. And so Perhaps this is a life lesson for anybody out there. Be careful of the cockiness and don't procrastinate. Now, you, I know in the present uh, as a very successful executive coach. In fact, we uh, bumped into each other at a great conference on marketing in Banff earlier this year when we were still conferencing. And, you know, we sat together and you mentioned to me that You thought you could help out a certain CEO there. And now you are. And I think that really deserves um, to be opened up because all solopreneurs, we work for ourselves. We have to find the business ourselves. Can you talk a little bit to everybody about your ability to network and where that came from? Because you have really great experience with, targeting and harvesting?
1: Yeah, so the, the fellow we're talking about, I won't, I won't name by name because I don't have permission to share that at the moment. Uh, the names I do name, I do have permission to share. But if I just kind of step back for a moment, uh, both my parents were salespeople. Uh, my, my father had no problem, you know, sort of working the room, if you will. And my mother was involved in a lot of organizational work for mayoralty campaign. She worked on Ralph Klein's uh, two campaigns for uh, Premier. And so I just got to see my mother working her network. And when we were younger, my mom uh, opened up a a retail shop, She was an esthetician for a while. And I saw, you know, sort of women come in and, and buy their services. And I just saw how my mother was in relationship with, to these ladies. And they'd they'd have their conversations. And then at the end of the service, they'd go to the till and these ladies would buy, you know, hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. And I'm thinking, well, how did that actually happen? Like I'm not, there was no like clothes that happened or a presentation that happened. It was all relational. So I think that I was uh, socialized as a person that, you know, there's no shame in selling in my family. There's no shame in networking. I just never, I never grew up with that. And I, I understand that for people that are attracted to service-related businesses there, that is one of those edges to get over, which is if I put myself out, I ask for help, I ask for the sale, uh, I ask for time, I ask for referrals from somebody, I'm somehow slimy or low integrity or something. I just never had that thought. Uh, in fact, it was the opposite. I do some of the things that I do in selling are the most enjoyable f- parts of the coaching process, the coaching I do before I'm, you know, technically hired. So anyways, this fellow that, whose conference I was at where you and I met that one day, I was, uh, he was introduced to me by Bruce Croxon and they had kind of connected along the, along the way. And uh, Bruce had suggested that this fellow and I have a conversation. And we eventually would have those conversations, that relationship did consummate at the end of the day. And hey, I'm working for this person at this, at this time. Uh, but the interesting thing is how I came to work with Bruce. Uh, I ended up meeting Bruce at a Predators game uh, sitting between Brett and Bruce and another fellow who we were just going to see a game. I had to wear a, a Preds uniform that was way bigger than my body. And we had to stand up every time the Preds scored, which was actually a lot that day. And we were the only four people in the saddle doing that. So I felt a little singled out. But anyways, it was a fun way to get to meet Bruce. And so I got to you know, uh, work with him and uh, he and I and his partner actually wrote a book together on curiosity, which was a really cool experience. So Brett, I met through a fellow called Richard Clark, who I've uh, done a lot of work with and actually wrote a book with him and his wife about the reinvention of their marriage. And that was all about compassion. And uh, Richard and Brett were at a charity function one Sunday afternoon, and they just got to talking about what was going on in each other's life. And the next thing I know on, on a Sunday, um, you know, they finished their, uh, their thing Monday morning. I'm getting an email from Richard saying, uh, you know, I, I want you to meet this fellow called Brett. And at that point I was on a, uh, self-imposed media fast and I wasn't working uh, a lot in the oil and gas industry. So I didn't know who Brett was. I didn't watch drive Dan* uh, or any of that kind of stuff. I don't have a TV cause I live on bright Creek. So I decided not to Google him and just meet him kind of a, you know, man to man. And within a week I was hired. Uh, to be his coach, and and uh, he and I did a lot of really great work together. And you know, he worked a lot on how he showed up in family relationships, and that's where he created, I think, most of the results. He would say he's most proud of. Uh, Richard helped Richard and his wife uh, just not not just rebuild their marriage, but end up uh, inventing a new asset class, which was kind of interesting. And that's a that's a separate story not to be told here. Um, I met. Richard through uh, a guy called Dave. I met Dave through a guy called John. These are all guys that I met and then did, did a really, I think, good piece of coaching work with each. I met, uh, uh, John through a guy called Tom and I met Tom through my coach. Tom had done a course with Phil and Phil thought that Tom and I would get along well together. And so, uh, that's where that referral came to, I met Phil. Uh, on a uh, ill-fated attempt to be in the seminar business, uh, I raised a bunch of money, got a bunch of partners together, uh, lost all of the money, spent years paying it all back. But the relationship with Phil was kind of a, the residue of that, which has been one of my most precious relationships. Uh, I discovered that seminar company, I was introduced to that seminar company got, by a guy called Hal Thompson. And Hal, when I was in design school and taking entrepreneurship classes, Hal showed up to one of our classes. Our prof often brought uh, industry people in and Hal had a, had a really fascinating story. He was the gold medalist in both engineering and uh, business at Western, I think it was. And then he became the youngest vice president of a company called Abaca Cities, which then went on to become Canada's largest bankruptcy at the, at the time. And so, you know, he, through no fault of his own, uh, obviously, but it was such an, a, a massive experience for a young man to go through. And so he came in, he shared that experience with us. And there was a tremendous number of really, really vital lessons, life lessons from that talk. And at the end, there was 23 of us in the class. He handed out 23 business cards to all the students present, uh, me, the one design student and 22 MBA students. And his offer was, you know, here's my card, phone me up, we'll talk, we'll, you know, we'll meet, we'll have an hour, talk about whatever you want. And shortly thereafter I took him up as his offer because I thought that was a no brainer. And we had such a great hour that Hal became my mentor. And about two years into that relationship, I was complaining about a lack of purpose and, and uh, Hal said, well, I've done this set of courses uh, through a company called Context Associated. Why don't I take you to an intro session and you can, you can see if it's a good fit for you. So I went to the intro session, the facilitator there, Said that these courses had been founded by a guy called Randy Revell who was a worked in venture capital in the valley back in the 70s and what he learned was that, that what differentiated the successful entrepreneurs from the less successful entrepreneurs was how well they knew each other how, how well they knew themselves and he founded his personal growth course on that philosophy and that was really compelling for me so I signed up for the course and I went and did the first course. I signed up for the second course while still up, while still in the first course, drove to Seattle, uh, went to the airport where we we're going to get picked up and taken off site to do the part two of this course. And I met the woman there that would become my wife for the last you know, 25 years. And uh, eventually then I would come to meet Phil as well. So basically what happened was somebody puts a business card in front of me, says, and he, this is a guy that's out building his network, extending his network, says, come and talk for an hour about anything you want. That one decision led to me meeting this fellow at that conference. And all those people that I just went through, it was just how the network collisions kind of went. And it was based on that single decision. Somebody makes me an offer and I said yes.
0: My gosh. And obviously you have kept those relationships up Whereas I think sometimes, you know, sure, someone goes to a course or meets somebody, talks to them one time, doesn't think much of it, and they forget about them, and they're on to the next. There's a real value in keeping those, those relationships. And what you were just saying, again, in your book, I underlined as well, personal growth precedes all business and professional growth. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I think if I'm living with my head in my ass, I'm not going to be very useful in a service context to someone. So I think job one is to extricate said head and, you know, do the do the personal work of understanding what my blind spots are and things that I think are true about me that are just fallacious fantasy-based thinking. You know, I think about my crash in Moab as a pretty great example of someone operating from a blind spot and how painful those blind spots can be and how brutal the awakening process can be. And I don't know if there's any getting around some of that, but I, I think about my work in the, you know, in the spirit of Randy Revel, which is helping people come to know themselves better so that they make better choices in time and those better choices to lead to the opportunity to make even better choices. You know, it, it again, it doesn't save from all blind spots, but I think doing the work uh, sidesteps a lot of the pain. And at least, you know, if I'm going to have crashes, they're going to be big learning lessons, you know, that there's going to be, they're going to be worthwhile. I'm not going to die as a result of them. Right. And even uh, where I chose to crash, I chose to crash in the in the safest area of the whole trail. So you right. think about my subconscious that decided that we needed to get a message into the front part of the head there where the guy's not listening, you know, let's, let's invent something magnificent so that he will hear us. Then that's kind of how I think about my subconscious. My subconscious is back there, uh, knows a lot more than my, my conscious part of myself, yes. And but, but they don't speak English to each other. They speak in a weird kind of code. And sometimes I think my, my non-conscious self engineers the experience that my conscious self needs to learn from. And for the most part, I don't get caught up in, you know, blaming the external world. Like I said, I wasn't even finished crashing when I realized that this event had meaning for me. And as a result, my my recovery was really, really fast. And I think there's something to that.
0: Yes. So you take everything that happens to you as something that's going to help you. Um, I know when we've been talking before, you mentioned Um, how worthwhile it is to find your passion or what you're passionate about but you have a really unique uh, well not unique you told me the definition of the word can you talk a little bit about finding and working in your passion and what that really means
1: yeah I have a bit of a geeky habit I like to look up words in the dictionary and find out where they originally came from and so much of our language is comes from Greek and Latin roots and passion is one of those and it basically means to suffer. And when I learned that everything about passion made sense, you know, from by the way, I, I could have sworn Shakespeare said that love is a sweet suffering and he didn't. And I don't know if I just made that up or I read it somewhere else, but I still think that's true. Love is a sweet suffering. And yeah. I think anything worth doing requires a degree of uh, willingness to, to suffer for it. And, and I don't mean manufacturing unnecessary pain, but I think the, you know, the Joseph Campbell idea of following your bliss—that if it's any, if it's any, it's any way hard, it can't be, it can't be good. I don't think the reverse is true either. It's not good unless it's hard. I just think that, I, I think the entrepreneurial personality can be captured well by just saying, entrepreneurs are those people that are willing to suffer long enough for a change to take hold. I think a lot of people will turn back from executing any sort of change process either in their life or in developing a new product for people that will benefit them simply because it gets hard. So they turn back and that's the respect I have for entrepreneurs is there is the grit. Barry Blanchard, who, look at, who uh, taught me how to ice climb and uh, prevented me from dying earlier in my career said uh, in his book, The Calling, which I really highly recommend, is I hurt, therefore I am. And that's something that every climber, I think, really understands down to the bones.
0: I hurt, therefore I am. That's amazing. I know your definition of passion has really helped me, and I've shared that with others too, because there is suffering in the work. There's suffering in relationships. and uh, if But if you're passionate for it, that brings some meaning to it, that this is par for the course, and so I'm on the right track. If someone was thinking of starting a business, and they were just starting it for the money versus starting it because this is what their gift is or their talent, do you have an opinion on or, or advice on that dilemma?
1: I have opinions on it, pretty much everything. no <laughs> matter what it is. <laughs> well, so the, I think the money. I think the money question is an interesting one. Uh, you know, people who are socially motivated and don't like selling, don't like networking, don't ask, like asking for business, uh, are often uh, connected to the dark side of money and, you know, it's corrupting influence. And I think that there are two ways, two things about money that don't work. One is to do something for the money and one is to do something not for the money. In other words, to pretend that the money thing is not important or to pretend that it's too important. It's, it's just a part of the thing. I think money is a really misunderstood thing. I think it's just, it becomes a, it becomes a proxy for my value in a transaction and, and a sense of self-worth and all that. And, and, and as a result, it can lead to a lot of screwy things. But I, I would say that in, embracing money for what it is, is something that we all need to figure out at some point. That Mm. trying to avoid it or trying to make it a bigger deal than it is. Those are the things that seem to to not work.
0: Yeah. Yes. And that comes back to the last quote I was going to read out of your book. The unexamined life is not worth living. Socrates. So we examine our beliefs about money, who we are. The more we can get to know ourselves, the more we can find that success that we're looking for. Is that what you would say?
1: Yeah, I I, I think so. You know, I spent a lot of my uh, kind of my middle years attempting to construct a vision that was pieced together by looking at travel magazines and fashion magazines. And, and I think about my relationship with my dad. Now, my dad entered this world. He was uh, he was the product of a, of a, of an extramarital affair in England and brought to Canada and put up for a back channel adoption. And like, he just had the worst life. But I think what ended up happening is somehow out of that, he did genuinely want his sons to have the best of life because he was given, you know, really the shitty end of the stick. And I think that kind of got a bit perverted in his case and, And it it became a bit too materialistic and consumeristic. And I I jumped right into that. I went to design school and developed the skills to appreciate really expensive things. And that, you know, at the end of the day, that stuff, you know, I like to be well dressed and I like to have a nice mountain bike and those sorts of things. But I think at the end of that, at the end of the day, that stuff most people learn doesn't matter as much as the importance of kids that respect my kids respecting me and having a marriage that is solid and has gone for a long time or, you know, where I'm still healthy at this age to go out and, you know, just grind my way up on a mountain bike. So I think that was probably of all the pieces that I've, uh, of work that I've done is, is disassembling the relationship that I had between my sense of self-worth and money. Cause I mistakenly believed that the, that the more money I had, and thus the more shit that i could buy and show everybody how w- worthy i was the better it was going to be but i just don't think it's i just don't think it's a valid equation anymore i still have a massive closet full of expensive crap that i can put on whenever i want but and i'm not going to get rid of it cuz it's still nice but uh, i'm just looking for i'm looking for other things now and at this stage of my life things that are more about you know what am i going to do with these you know, essentially the last moments of my life here as I'm heading through autumn and into winter of my life.
0: Yeah. And those of us uh, at all different stages of their life because of the pandemic have maybe even touched on some of those issues and they have nice clothes in their closets and there's nowhere they can even wear them. So what really is important? (laughs) Well, um, Keith, I highly recommend if you haven't read Blind Spotting the series, stepping up to a higher purpose and higher profit. I mean, it is business, but it is life. Um, love your viewpoints on passion and the help that you offer. Uh, Keith is one of those guys who just knows how to ask a targeted question and reveal the answers that are inside and will hold you accountable to them. Um, where can people find you? What's your website? Are you on social media?
1: Yeah, I'm a bit of a social media dud, but I do have some stuff. Uh, people can find me on stepup.net. And through there, uh, I have a bunch of websites that are all tied together. Um, blindspotting.net is where I, pu- I publish my blog and where information about my books my books are, uh, are on there. Um, So that's probably the easiest place to to catch me.
0: You know, even as you're just saying that, I'm realizing how emphatic some people are, you know, the influencers about being all over social media to get business. And you're showing the exact success of the opposite of that. It's really coming down to relationships and trust behind the scenes. Not doesn't always have to be this flashy stuff all over social media and online. In fact, sometimes I think the more value somebody brings to uh, an issue, the less flashy they need to be. And sometimes the less value they bring, they try and flash it all up with a song and a dance. Um, Any last words before we go for entrepreneurs, solopreneurs trying to do a better business, grow their network before we go, Keith?
1: Yeah, I, I here's my, I think how I would just kind of summarize it. I think it's really hard to start a business. And uh, I feel really grateful that I did it a long time ago when there was almost no competition for coaches. And I got lucky because the business, the seminar business that I bought into and then subsequently blew up, at least had a client list of entrepreneurs on it. And those were the first people that I started introducing to my ideas around coaching. And and if I hadn't had that original network, I'm, I'm not sure what I would do. And, you know, I don't mean to denigrate social media because I think it's people have to get their brain around networking somehow. And the social networks are certainly one way to do it. Uh, I'm a, a bit of a loss to, to give any advice on that because it's just um, I think it would be really hard to start a coaching business these days. But if anybody's going to do anything, I, I still think. Find something, some place in the world that seems really important and, you know, just be prepared to, to grind it out and make something of it. It's not, it's definitely not easy, but I think the people that are prepared to, you know, climb to the top of the hill are the ones that are actually going to get the view.
0: Yes, that's right. It's not easy, even if you have an easy button. Which I do. That is true. That is true. <laughs> well, thanks very much. I know you got some value out of that, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Keith. And reach out. Pleasure. I'll have his contact info in all of my details here. And uh, thanks for listening to the Successful Soulpreneurs podcast. Bye for now.